Hi, everybody. Good to see you. Glad that you're here and uh, that uh, we all missed the rain so far. So good. That's good. I am uh, looking around and realizing this is the end of spring break. <laughs> Just a lot of people traveling. So, But you're here, and that's what counts. And um, my prayer for everyone who walks in the door is that they find something meaningful every single time we gather together. And so that's my prayer for you today. We're... Um, uh, talking about this road to the cross, and um, we've been on um, this journey for a couple of weeks. We've been following Luke's biography of Jesus and uh, a particular section of it. In fact, here it is. Um, Chapters 9 through 19 really contain all of the stories on the road, because in 9, it says that Jesus set out resolutely for Jerusalem, and in chapter 19 is when he actually arrives in Jerusalem, right? And so everything that happens in between is, is on the road, and, and uh, it, it's been fun seeing how God has interacted with people and how he's been poking the bear with sticks a little bit along the way, right? Um, I've, I've really enjoyed um, revisiting some of those stories and just those those uh, interactions, and I, I kind of get this feeling that there's this, this notion of Jesus as he's kind of sticking it to the man as he goes along. I don't know who the man is in this case. Apparently, it's a Pharisee of some type, uh, some type of religious leader. And um, and all I'm going to tell you is just wait until next week. Uh, we're going to tie all these things together. I promise. It's going to be a lot of fun uh, to see. Uh, where this where this thing uh, lands together, uh, all together. So traditionally today, by the way, is Palm Sunday. Dan was just talking about this. So in chapter 19, when Jesus enters the, the city of Jerusalem, um, let's see if I can get the picture. Yeah, when he enters the city of Jerusalem, he comes in on a donkey and people are waving palm branches. We call it Palm Sunday. And that commemorates the triumphal entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem after this long journey. Okay, that's, well, that's what normally happens uh, on this day. And he arrives with a bunch of fanfare, and people have this, these high expectations of him and what his kingdom's going to look like, because here's this traveling rabbi who is a miracle worker. So if anybody's going to dislodge Rome, it's going to be this guy. And so they've got this expectation of him uh, when he enters the city. However, I want to make a stop on the journey just before we arrive in Jerusalem. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take us back just a little bit further. And the stop is going to be in a city called Jericho. And I want you to think a little bit about the history of Jericho. Of course, this is the first city that Israel encounters uh, when they begin the conquest of Canaan a few thousand years ago. Okay? Isn't it interesting that this is the last city that Jesus goes to as he begins the conquest of sin and death? Isn't that interesting? Do you think about that? And yes, Jericho is the city where the walls come tumbling down. And if you're a VeggieTales fan, it's where... Jerry Gord gets slurpy in his ear. So some of you know what I'm talking about. Others of you need to pick up the video. It's very good. Anyway, so we're going to join the trip uh, today in Luke chapter 18. And I want to look at two particular scenes. 
Okay, so we're going to be in uh, the end of Luke 18, the beginning of, uh, of Luke 19. If you have a Bible, you might want to turn there, or you might want to plug it into your Bible app. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, just kind of read through this uh, verse by verse, and we're going to talk about it as we go along, because these are two fascinating stories um, that I want you to see, and it's the reason why we're making this stop um, before Palm Sunday. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening, and they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. So picture this. He's outside the city walls of Jerusalem. He's making his way. Uh, he's there. And there's, the, there's this beggar, a blind beggar. Now, please understand, this is not uncommon. In fact, it's expected that you would find people... Um, along the way, uh, near major city gates, doing some begging, especially if they were blind, because there were not a whole lot of other jobs that they could do, right? And furthermore, there's a bit of speculation, especially among religious leaders, as to why they were blind. Um, and uh, did mom and dad sin? Did the, the man sin? Because, you know, they're, you know, this is a pretty bad thing for someone to experience, and so uh, you would have uh, people who were blind, and they were almost outcasts in many respects. So begging at the side of the road among, among blind people was very common. And so the, the, uh, this beggar hears the commotion, and he asks a very natural question. Who, who is this? What's going on? What's with the parade, man? What, what's happening? And so um, the, let's go on. We can read the story. Uh, he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So apparently Jesus... Um, uh, reputation preceded him at this point as a miracle-working rabbi. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. I love this. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. You know, Jesus is coming in and people know who he is and what he's about. And when they tell him to be quiet, he has hope, he has courage, and you know what else he has? He has persistence. He persists in shouting uh, louder. <laughs> Persistence pays off, by the way. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. It's huh. a great question, isn't it? What do you want me to do for you? What is it? in your heart that you really want. Now, please understand, there's a lot of things that that beggar could have responded. Lord, I could really use an extra few bucks just to make it through the end of the day or the end of the week. Lord, I would really like to have somebody to help me get up and, and um, uh, get to a place to sleep or, yeah, I would like a place to sleep. No, he didn't ask for that. He got down to the real crux of the matter, didn't he? I want to see. I just want to see. It's not spiritualized, it's not softened, it's bottom line, raw and heartfelt. I want to see. And, and it strikes me, as I'm, as I'm reading through this, that Jesus still asks this of all of us. What do you want me to do for you? What, what is it that's at the, the bottom part of your heart? What's that thing, the thing that you're ignoring? What is that? And, and it's kind of this, this um, I don't want to say it's a call, but I guess it's kind of a call. When Jesus asks that question, what do you want me to do for you? It, 
it really is a call for us to pray specifically. Because sometimes when we pray generally, we're going to get a general answer. But when we pray specifically, we're more likely to get a specific answer. Does that make sense? So when you, in your prayers, don't just pray the general sort of thing, oh, and bless so-and-so. It's fine to do that, by the way. But what does that blessing mean? What are you asking for? What do you want the Lord to do for you? So think about that. So pray specifics. Moving on. Um, <clears throat> Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. You believe that I could do it. You, you gave me a real answer, and so that is what healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw, saw it, they also praised God. Interesting, right? So this honesty that he gave, this heartfelt sort of bottom line, crux of the matter, raw answer to the question, demonstrated to Jesus' faith. Why? Because we don't typically we don't typically share those parts of our heart with people that we don't believe in. Think about that for a minute. You know, think about those places that, you know, you're uncomfortable sharing. And unless you have faith in that person that they have their best interests at heart or that they can actually do for you're not gonna you're gonna keep that hidden, aren't you? I mean we all do it. It's human nature for us to protect ourselves that way. But his honesty demonstrated faith. And, and look at the natural response. He received his sight, and he followed Jesus, praising God. And then it says that the crowd did the same thing. They saw it too, and they also praised God. Now, keep that scene in the back of your mind as we're, as we're going through this, because, because in the, what happens is that Jesus goes through the gates of Jericho. So he's outside the city. Now he's inside the city, and we're introduced to somebody else. A, a very familiar figure that if you grew up in Sunday school, you sang a song. <clears throat> Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Yep, see, you all know it, right? <laughs> so you've, re- you've heard this song before, but a couple of things I want to point out that I think is really interesting. So Jesus entered Jericho, and remember, he's passing through. Why? Because he was resolutely set towards where? Jerusalem. He's just passing through. Jerusalem and Jericho are not that far apart. There is no reason why he cannot pass Jericho and pass through Jericho and get to Jerusalem in plenty of time for whatever it is uh, appointment that he had. He had no intention to stop. And we're introduced to this man named Zacchaeus. Now, notice that it says that he is a, not just a tax collector, he is a chief tax collector. Okay, this is an important little detail, and I think that we we need to to understand some context here. First of all, Jericho is on an on an important trade route, and so you've got this you've got this city that's overlooking this trade route, and so you know that there's a Roman garrison there, and there are troops, and they're keeping law and order in that part of the trade route, but. As a trade route, that means a lot of goods are passing through there. And guess what? Rome is going to get its share. Just is. And so what would happen is that they would find a local, typically, ask or hire them or demand them to be a tax collector. But as a chief tax collector, he couldn't do it all himself because it was a busy city. So he appointed other people to be tax collectors. 
collectors. And so um, everybody got a cut of the taxes. Think of it as a government-sponsored pyramid scheme, okay? That's kind of what's going on here. Now, I, I, we, we need to talk a little bit about taxes. We need to understand this. So here's how the taxes would work. And I am making up these numbers. You're not going to find this in any scholarly work. I'm just doing this for illustrative purposes. But essentially, let's say um, somebody is uh, shipping some type of spice um, from the eastern part of the, the empire to the western part, and then it comes through Jericho, and the tax on that particular spice is, is three bucks. Not that they had dollars, okay, I'm just using it for illustrative purposes, okay, it's a $3 tax. Well, the tax collector is probably going to charge five bucks. He's going to keep a buck and he's going to pass a buck on to, to the chief tax collector. Sounds like a pretty sweet deal, right? I mean, tax collector, he just appointed somebody, he's getting a piece of the action for not doing a whole lot other than appointing this person. And uh, when you have a system like that, the local population tends to not like you because that tax may quote-unquote change. Now, it's th still $3 to Rome, but mama need a new pair of shoes, and the tax collector is going to charge you an extra buck fifty. Does that make sense? So what you have is you have these fluctuating amounts of taxes based on the whim of the local tax collector, as the case may be. And so they're hated by the Jews because they are considered traitors. I mean, it's, it's literally collusion with the enemy. I mean, Rome is the enemy. Now, forget the fact that Rome's got more soldiers and more equipment and more firepower than anybody else in the Western world at this point in history. Doesn't matter. Jews were Jews. They were waiting for the king to return. So Rome is just an occupying force at this point. So if you're in collusion with them, you're not typically liked by the local population. Does this make sense? In fact, most of the time when we read about them in the scriptures, in these biographies of Jesus, the thing that we see over and over again is tax collectors are almost always in the same sentence, and sinners. Or tax collectors and prostitutes. So they're kind of put into this certain category of being, being turncoats. And then secondly, um, we see that not only is he a chief tax collector, but he was also wealthy. Well, yeah, if every you know, other tax collector is giving you a piece of the action, of course you're going to accumulate a certain amount of wealth. It, doesn't, it makes perfect sense. And, and then Luke gives us another little detail that I think is really important to all of this and provides a, a certain amount of, of insight into Zacchaeus and what's actually happening here. Here it is. And uh, verse 3 and 4, uh, Zacchaeus wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. He was a wee little man, right? And a wee little man was he. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Interesting to note, a sycamore fig tree did produce fruit, although it was not a highly valued fruit. There were other fig trees that people preferred more, which I find is a little interesting detail. But what I'm more interested in here is the fact that it says he was short. Actually, the Greek says a little bit more than that. It's not just that he was short. He was small in stature. He was a, he was a small guy. He, he wasn't tall, and he wasn't brawny, and he didn't possess the characteristics that most societies would uh, value in a man. He didn't have that. Because he was small of stature, he could not, could not see over the crowd, and so he has to climb a tree. Now, I'm going to speculate, and you need to understand, this is just my speculation at this point. 
But there's this part of me that says, you know what, that explains a lot about Zacchaeus. Having been around um, kids who were a little bit smaller growing up, they got picked on. And something tells me that that's not just a modern-day phenomenon, that this has probably been going on for centuries for whatever reason. And Zacchaeus ends up feeling so hurt by that that he turns against his own people. If I don't have the physical power, I'm going to create financial power, political power, so that I don't have to get hurt by them again. Does this sound familiar? Have you heard people talk like this before? I have too. And so he turns against his entire race out of his pain. And what did it matter? Because he already felt it rejected by them because of his stature. This is a very human thing. What we're seeing here is a very human thing. And so what, he, what does he do? He climbs a tree for a view. He doesn't care what people think of him. He's got plenty of money. He doesn't have to have people like him. They don't like him anyway because of his occupation. And they didn't like him before that because of his stature. So what does it matter if I embarrass myself and climb a tree? And so he does because he's goal-oriented. He actually wants to see who Jesus is. Look what happens next. I love this. When Jesus reached the spot... He looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Now, it is very unusual to ask someone else for hospitality because hospitality is usually offered. It is not demanded. It's not asked for. And remember, Jesus is just passing through. He doesn't have to stay at Jericho. He can make Jerusalem by nightfall. No big deal. He can do that. You know what? Sometimes the need is more important than the clock, isn't it? If you've got kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Sometimes the need is just more important than the time that's on the clock. Now, here's the interesting thing, though. Notice how... He, he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. You know, it was a great honor to host a rabbi, and tax collectors and sinners did not often get that opportunity. In fact, it was pretty rare. Because of his op- occupation, rabbis wouldn't go near his house. So this is a big deal. Big deal. Notice what happens. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he is going to be the guest of a sinner. They started muttering to themselves, a sinner. Hey, wait a minute. Wasn't this the same group of people who just a a little while ago were praising God? Jesus likes to do stuff like that. He performs a miracle that everybody sees. The man receives a sight. Everyone's happy, joyously, They're dancing in my mind, but I don't know about anybody else. And they're kind of excited about all of this. And yet Jesus comes and he does this same group of people witnessing the same thing going, wait a minute, what just happened? He's going, he's going to the house of of this sinner. It's kind of funny, actually. It's kind of odd that Jesus does this. This is a dramatic turn that's going on here. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, 
Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. You know what? Sometimes people just need to be simply acknowledged and respected in order to change. All of his life, because of his small stature and because of his occupation, he's been looked down upon. He has to make a fool of himself and climb up a tree just to see something that he wants to see. And here is probably one of the most powerful people, at least uh, in, other, in the minds of the public, uh, on, the, on the face of the earth, who is walking through and stops and looks up and says, I need to stay at your house. Can you imagine the dignity and respect that that communicated to him? Maybe for the first time in his life. And in public, in front of all of this, this group of people who just a few moments ago were, were shouting and then muttering. And, and yet Jesus calls him out and says, I need to stay at your house. And, and look what he does. And he says, I'm going to give half of what I possess to the poor. That's a kingdom mindset. That's what Jesus has been preaching all along this journey. And here he is. He just has come into Jericho. He hasn't even really met this guy. And he, Zacchaeus comes and says, I'm going to give half. He understands what's going on here. And furthermore, he will give four times if he cheated anybody. By the way, that's what's required by the law, by the Torah, by the Jewish law of, of uh, conduct. He's supposed to, if he cheats anybody, give four to five times back. And he says, I will give four times what I've cheated them out of. Which is really ironic because up until that point in time, Zacchaeus had no use for the law because the law had already rejected him. His people had already, do you see this? I mean, is this beginning to make sense that there's something going on underneath the surface here that is really powerful that's happening? And you just thought it was about a sycamore tree, didn't you? No, there's something else here. There's this beautiful picture of something that's happening. And I want you to see this, because I think this is probably the most important piece of this entire passage. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too, this man too is a son of Abraham. He's a Jew just like everyone else. Remember how we talked um, last week about the woman who was healed as a cripple, and he called her a daughter of Abraham. He is adding weight to, to, to who he is. For this man, too, is a son of Abraham. Regardless of his size and his stature, regardless of his occupation, he is still a son of Abraham. For the son of man, meaning Jesus, myself, came to seek and to save the lost, which, by the way, he used uh, that same phrase in Luke chapter 7 a long time ago. So let me ask you a question. Who's celebrating now? Who's, who's celebrating this, this activity? Jesus. You know, Jesus is happy to alleviate the suffering of someone who's blind. He's happy to do it. And it's dramatic, and it's big, and the crowds praise God, and they're thankful but Jesus himself is more overjoyed. Why? When someone gets the kingdom of God. When someone truly understands what he's talking about and that kind of change occurs in their heart, that's what gets Jesus excited. 
It's not that he won't do the healing. It's not that he won't do the poor. But when he helps other people understand their role in dealing with things like alleviating suffering, that's when Jesus gets excited, especially if they have means to do it. And by the way, everybody's got means. Whether it's financial, whether it's some kind of giftedness, whether it's some kind of resource that you have, and everybody has the same resource called time. And when people start to get that, that's when Jesus gets excited, and we can't miss this. And so we have these two extraordinary stories that are set in the same location, and yet they're so different from one another. It actually seems a little weird, doesn't it? I mean, is it, is it weird that one of the people is, is unnamed and the other one is named? Is it weird that one is outside the city and the other is inside the city? That one is unemployed and the other is employed? Is it weird that one is poor and the other one is rich? Is it weird that one needs physical healing and the other needs inner healing? Is it weird that one speaks to Jesus first and the other one actually hears Jesus first? Is it weird that one sits on the ground and the other climbs a tree. We're talking about polar opposites here, all in the same setting. And we have to remember that Luke is a sophisticated sophisticated writer. He's an author who has an agenda. There's a reason for these two stories to be put together in the same location. And knowing this, can I ask this question, is it weird that both men wanted to see? that sink in just for a minute. Blind man wants to see, but so did Zacchaeus. He wanted to see who Jesus was. Don't miss that. It's the one thing that they had in common. They had different reasons for it, but they had the same desire. They had different afflictions, but they had the same hope that somehow Jesus would be different. And there's a lot of takeaways here. There's a lot of things that you can read into this, a lot of things you can learn from. There's a lot of things that you can apply, but here's mine. I just, you, you can take it if you want to, but this is mine. People still want to see Jesus. They don't want to necessarily see me or my skill or my results. They don't necessarily even want to see Thrive Church, and they don't necessarily want to see you or your accomplishments. They just want to see Jesus meeting them where they are. People still want to see Jesus. Rich, poor, everyone needs the redemption and healing of Jesus, even you. (laughs) So here's my question. What do you want the Lord to do for you? Same question that Jesus asked. Maybe you've got a physical ailment. Maybe you have a fractured relationship. I don't know. Maybe there are a host of other things that I'm unaware of. I'd love to pray with you about those, um, if you want. Um, I'm going to um, be off to the side again, like I usually am, and I am more than willing to pray with you about anything. And I'm going to ask you, what do you want the Lord to do for you? I'm not the Lord. 
but we're going to talk to the one who can do those things together. You know, I, I want you to remember one thing before we wrap this up today. <laughs> and I find this kind of interesting. When Jesus enters Jericho, walls are still falling down. <laughs>